Welcome to GeoInteresting. Today we have a special supersized episode featuring Lieutenant General Russell Honore and Admiral Thad Allen discussing customer service in times of crisis. General Honore and Allen visited NGA earlier this month to speak to our workforce on their experiences serving as senior military leaders during the aftermath of Hurricanes Katrina and Rita 10 years ago. Today's episode was recorded on October 5th, 2015 at NGA Campus East's Alder Auditorium. The event was moderated by NGA's Shelby Pearson. Stay tuned for GeoInteresting. I'd like to turn it over. Um, each of the gentlemen are going to make some opening remarks, so I'd like to turn it over to Admiral Allen first. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, thanks for having us here uh, this afternoon. I was able to participate in this uh, event last year, and it's always an honor to be here. Uh, let me say at the start, uh, I was one of those people that called Jim Clapper in 2005, and he immediately said yes to anything I asked for. Uh, he's an extraordinary patriot. I'm glad he's where he's at at DNI. And I consider him a close personal friend. You all should be very, very proud of him. So uh, here's my pitch. <laughs> uh, Tom Friedman, op-ed columnist for the New York Times, wrote a book a while back called The World is Flat. Some of you may have read it. His next book will be The World is Fast. And that's the conversion of technology, uh, changes in climate, and globalization. Uh, and the upshot of all of that is everything we're going to be dealing with in the future, whether it's a fixed program or a crisis in this country, in this world, is going to be complex. And I think what you're going to find out as we have our discussion today that the complexity becomes a risk aggravator at some point. It starts to defeat standard operating procedures, rebuttable presumptions about how things should act. And I think we need to learn how to challenge assumptions and understand whether or not we're really trying to solve the problem. Uh, the second half of that is the antidote to complexity is co-production and collaboration. Uh, as we heard in the antidote about where you move forces and who you ask permission, uh, we, send, we tend to uh, divide things up by authorization and appropriation. And the fact of the matter is no agency or private sector firm or NGO has the resources to solve one of these large problems by themselves. So the question is, how do you co-produce the outcomes that meet the expectations of the American people? Uh, I, use I use New Orleans as an example of complexity. Uh, we all thought of it as a hurricane. I define it as the use of a weapon of mass effect in the city without criminality uh, that resulted in a loss of continuity of government without decapitation of leadership. That's all uh, hyphenated. It took us a week to figure that out. But once we did, Russ and I were able to put together a plan on how to address it and empower local leaders to use their statutory authorities with the support of the federal government as appropriate uh, to solve the problem moving forward. Uh, so as we look at these problems, and the leadership it takes to address them, we need to start thinking about how we unhinge our thinking and start learning how to uh, address uh, the issues associated with complexity, which becomes a risk aggravator, and how we take that apart and how we deal with it moving forward. It's like being on you said five minutes. So. high school debate too much. <laughs> yes. I like it, yes. Um, General Henry. Well, thank you. 
Uh, well, it's an honor to be here, and I'd like to thank all of you uh, for what y'all do uh, for our uh, country, uh, for the home game here in America, and uh, the away game, the things you do for our warriors and uh, soldiers, sailors, and all Marines and Coast Guard around the world who need uh, relevant information uh, that help them make smart decisions. And, they depend on you. They literally uh, are like patients on a, uh, a life support uh, that you're sending here with information that might help some sailor uh, on a ship trying to tell his boss what, what just happened and what might happen in the next 12 hours or what happened in the last 24 hours. And somebody sitting behind a machine here is looking at that. And, uh, it's up to you to try and make sure that information get through the pipeline and get to the right person to make the right decision. As far as looking back 10 years, uh, I guess I'll start off with recognizing the fact that 10 years ago today, I was in Cameron Parish, Louisiana, dealing with Hurricane Rita because we had Katrina, then came Rita on the 24th of September, affectionately known by the governor of Louisiana as the Twisted Sisters. Uh, <laughs> that basically uh, laid uh, waste to our coastline and uh, almost uh, destroyed uh, much of the infrastructure along the coast. But, but it also put into play uh, the role of the federal government inside the United States. We, you know, from the Civil War forward, uh, amendments to the Constitution and other things have been put in place to prevent the overreaching rule of the federal government in state uh, activities for good reason. Um, I couldn't tell you the, the first 36 hours I was there, how many times some idiot walked up to me uh, with something about the posse comitatus. Every <laughs> house lawyer between New York and uh, Washington and uh, the coast was, who had taken that course, was watching <laughs> what we were doing and how we were doing it in terms of uh, stretching out uh, our authority to be there, but embedded in that, as I shared with the executive staff earlier, we were focused on a mission, which was to save people's lives. The other thing is, after 35 years in the service and you just didn't fall off some pumpkin truck in New Orleans, and somebody said, look, we've discovered a leader. No, uh, you spent 35 years of investing in the two of us in professional development course and successive commands, that when you get there, people accept you to solve the problem. So you go in the game, if it is to throw the football, that's what you do. You do it the best you can. You don't get down there and say, well, let me call back and ask for permission. You go in and you make the best decision you can, particularly when you're in the life-saving phase. And Admiral will agree with me, I hope, that when you're in the life-saving phase, you got to do what you do to save people's lives. And sometimes you got to break the rules. Uh, by the time we got people to the airport on Saturday morning and we got the New Orleans airport open, we had a couple events that happened. And one of them, the TSA guy said, in the middle of the evacuation, we got to stop because we don't have enough TSA people here. <laughs> this is your government at work. He was following the rules. Now, well, there's a couple ways I could have handled that. I could have tried to find somebody in Secretary Chertoff's office who to call the White House, who to call the somebody over at the FAA or the secretary got hold, and two hours later, we'd have had the flow open. 
the solution was we needed a solution right now. Because if I wait two to three hours, Anderson Cooper is going to find out about that. And then we're going to be looking stupid. Because we stopped the evacuation because some guy from the TSA said he needed more wands to inspect people. So here's how we handle it. We get him in the room. We put him on a speakerphone. And I'm talking to him. And I said, what's the problem? He said, well, we don't have enough equipment to screen everybody. I said, okay. I understand why you're doing what you're doing. But I want to assure you, Osama bin Laden is not in New Orleans. <laughs> we need you to load the damn airplanes. And the only thing I remember, I think the day before the president came in, he said, Honore, whatever you need to do, you get these people out here. You understand? That was good enough. We, we didn't need a revalidation that we had a mission. Because inside our government, everything is set up to have that balance between the authorities of the federal government and the rules. We all know why we put that rule in. And just, again, a quick two hours later, the next group of airplanes come in, brought in by Transcom. Didn't have to do anything. General Swartz just sent the stuff in. Airplane field is full of wide-body aircraft. That group of pilots came in, and they said, hey, we need to know who's in charge because we can't take off because the last group of airplanes didn't have a manifest. Imagine that, flying an airplane without a manifest. Well, these people don't have dual uh, identification. There's no computers up at the airport. How do you do? So here's a guy come from Chicago who spent the night at a five-star hotel bringing his federal rules in. You got to get a manifest. How are you going to create a manifest? These people need to go. Again, so we pulled the same trip. We brought him in a room, put him on the Blackberry, put him on the speakerphone, and said, okay, Captain, how can we help you? And he said, I need a manifest. We can't take off without a manifest. Again, we could have gone, go call Admiral Allen, who might have gotten checked here, checked off, called back and said, hey, we're going to create a rule, the exception to fly this plane without a manifest. Again, in that case, it was a very short conversation. Look, Captain, uh, we can't create a manifest. We cannot pull a manifest out of our you-know-what. We need you to fly the airplane. And he ho hum and how I said, bottom line is, we got guns, you don't fly the damn airplanes. <laughs> I'm telling you that because everybody's trying to do their job. That captain is trying to follow the rules, right? That TSA but nobody is co-producing the outcome. It's <laughs> <laughs> trying to follow the rules. But in essence, when you're in the search and rescue mode, you've got to do what you've got to do because you don't have time to run it back through the bureaucracy. And in essence, we, in those first few days, and when the Admiral got settled in, and we, after we finished search and rescue and then going through all the homes, we went back to the normal protocol. Stuff like that would come up. I'd call him, and he'd take care of it. That was nice. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Are she done? I'm done. Oh, okay. <laughs> We're never tell. quite sure. Right, yeah, it's never. We'll get him going again. Um, one of them, I've had the privilege of spending some time with the gentleman here this morning, and one of the things that struck me about how both of them speak about Katrina is they still speak about it like the day and the week was last week. It, they'll say, Tuesday night I was here, Wednesday night I was there, Friday morning we were in such and such a parish. It, and so to see that event um, be talked about e that, that way 10 years later is quite remarkable. Admiral Allen, we talked a little bit about, um, in your opening comments, this, the challenging of assumptions, this 
natural tension, even in Ed's remarks, that the Department of Defense wasn't totally cool with this um, at the beginning, and I know you came a couple days um, after General Honoré was on scene. Can you talk a little bit more about um, and share with us your thoughts about the issues of um, finding that right balance, having sure. people see things in a common way, and then also you, you mentioned over lunch that I'd like you to share with the audience your perceptions of law, policy, and tradition all coming sure. together. Sure. Um, as you all know, there's a process for asking for DOD assets in a domestic crisis pursuant to an emergency declaration. There's a mission assignment, a request for forces. This all ends up going to the Secretary of Defense for an order book and coming back down. That is an ungainly process that puts in a lot of time. So the challenge that I had, the challenge that Russ had, uh, was trying to make that work in a condensed time frame. And in many cases, somebody, some people uh, advance the resources and let the paperwork catch up. But if we don't do that, then you're not focused on the number one priority, which is saving lives. And everybody can be melded together and focus on that single task to do that. And that's how people get bound together, co-produce the outcomes, and do things that are extraordinary that they normally wouldn't be able to do. But you have to overcome the complexity of the situation and create clarity around the task what it is you're trying to do and how you're going to do that. The second thing is you've got to collaborate and co-produce, as I said before. One of the first things I did when I got down there was to meet with Russ, and we decided there would be no air gap between us. There's one federal uh, entity down here. It is us collectively. We're going to figure out how to work this together. And we are here in support of state and local authorities because under our Constitution, all power is not granted to the federal government reserved to the states, as Russ has said. So you have to craft a solution that respects the law but doesn't let the law constrain you. In this case, it was providing elements to reconstitute civil society in New Orleans that allowed them to have police officers go house to house to see if there were survivors and deal with a very difficult issue of remains recovery and not presume their authorities. In this case, it was access, security, rubber boats, high water vehicles provided by the 82nd Airborne and the Marines down in St. Bernard Parish to accomplish that. But allow you have to check your egos at the door, focus on the task and get everybody bound together in a, in a spirit of trust that you're going at the number one task and that's saving lives. Did I? Do you think people fall back into their, when it's not, when you're not driven by the most compelling mission, which is in this case saving lives, that a few weeks later we're back to our paperwork, we're back to our bureaucracy? That, that well, well we, have, we have rules for, for a reason and you can always claim you were saving lives in the exigency of the situation, but the longer it takes and four or five weeks afterwards, then all of a sudden GAO and the IG don't understand what you did. Okay. <laughs> so at some point there's a transition back to the rule of law, if you will, but it has to be a measured process where you have to establish the right priorities. And my, 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 my theory was, and I, I think Russ would probably agree, you know, I, I always say if you, can, if you can provide a model of what you were thinking about, uh, how you assessed information, and you're, most of the time you're operating under conditions of uncertainty in a compressed time frame with incomplete information. But if you can articulate how you challenge assumptions, how you made the decision, so that after a fact a reasonable person would say, yeah, I get that, then you're arguing about the quality of your information, not what you did in terms of your own conduct. When you start to have more time, then you have to be more judicious about how you do it. Mm -hmm. General Allred. Well, I, let me back into this and say I knew it was time for me to leave New Orleans, leave Louisiana about a year ago, 10 years ago today. Uh, we had a pocket of cows down in Cameron Parish <laughs> that we were trying to get out. We had just spent two days getting the major herds out, and uh, the, uh, the guy from the 
Farm Bureau came in and said, we got one more pack of cows. We need to get some hay to them. So a uh, guy walked up to me. I said, okay, my helicopter just left. So I called back to my headquarters. said, mission me uh, a couple of uh, those Hueys. We had some uh, Marine Hueys down in uh, New Orleans. So in a half hour, I get a call from my chief of staff. He said, uh, the lawyer at Northcom said uh, no. Wait a minute, I'm a JTF commander. What the hell is lawyer at Norcom? Because we've gone past the life-saving. We were down in Cameron Paris saving cows. So some marine lawyer, a major, is saying no. So I said, okay, it's time for me to leave. Get my damn helicopter here. I'm headed back to Bell Chase. And when I get relieved, uh, I'll leave the state. Because it was time for me to leave there because I could not go back to where we had been, which is process a request, uh, have everybody chop on it to see if it was inside the intent of the law uh, and if we were using military assets for what they could be used for. So you get this lawyer, the thing is no longer every day on the TV, it's every, every now and then, and he's looking at this, well, why would we want to use a Marine helicopter to go save cows? It doesn't fit his class he took. It's not on his checklist. Uh, it was time for me to leave. But, but let me go back and say this, uh, just in context, because a lot of people will look at what happened in Louisiana, and you talk about competence of people and all. And let me say this. Uh, the first responders inside the area of Mississippi and Louisiana, they were victims. And a disaster is different when the first responders are victims. The same thing happened in Haiti. Uh, the police and fire, uh, hospital people, EMS, they were victims. And you, you get a different kind of response than you get even at a 9-11, where you got a point event and people come in from all over to come in and help. In an event like this, when the first responders themselves our houses are underwater, and they have no sanctuary, and they don't know where their families are, create a lot of chaos, and people draw uh, from uh, value-based discussions about the incompetence of the New Orleans Police Department. Well, how good would you be if 90% of your police cars were underwater, your police, most of them in civilian clothes, because they left the house in the middle of the night or they were at the precinct and their precinct headquarters was underwater. The, the courthouse where the police headquarters is had four foot of water around it. So uh, I often remind people is that when you get a major disaster like this and the first responders are victims, the response is gonna be disjointed. It's gonna not look efficient. It's not gonna look like it's coordinated. Because in order to coordinate, you have to be able to talk. And we could not talk between New Orleans and Baton Rouge because the grid went down. No power and the digital grid went down and the police even had trouble keeping the, the, the uh, handheld uh, devices charged. So that create a structure that we respond by block, we respond by districts inside of our local governments, we respond by parishes. That was a major disruptor when, 
Anderson Cooper, and I'm using Anderson, I'm blowing Anderson out the water here, but as a descriptor, show up the day after you Katrina. You go, bro. And, and he's got the camera there and showing a body floating or showing babies needing water, and we're not there. Uh, and where is the police? Where are the EMS teams? Well, you know what? They're victims too. And, or they show a picture of some dude with a 52-inch TV on his back in waist-deep water and say there's a looting problem. So the world starts believing to include the government that we got a security problem in New Orleans. Actually, we got a logistics problem. That dude that's stealing the TV, uh, he's not right. <laughs> but there's no reason to shoot him. <laughs> so putting a shoot-to-kill order out is not proper either. So we're working with that. And then when you go from Katrina to Rita, the mayor tells you, as he told me, well, he wants us to go in and force people out of their homes. Well, knowing a little bit about the Constitution, we can take a knee and say, well, we can't force people out of their home. That's state law. That's not something we do as federal troops. But we'll be there tomorrow for the ones that don't leave, and we're going to give them food and water, because our job is to keep them alive. So those are the kind of conundrums you end up with in uh, you adapt, and if you can't figure it out, you pass it up the line. General Henry, when you reflect back, now that you have a little bit of time, obviously, since those events, and you mentioned it in your opening remarks, this issue of thinking about the customer more as a patient, mm -hmm. a patient-physician relationship, um, I think that's something that, again, in the context of Customer Service Week, if yeah. you might want to reflect on that um, for the group. Well, I would say the, the, the idea of focusing on meeting the needs of the people that you serve uh, is at the end of the day is a requirement. But my concern with that as a, uh, as a theme for the enterprise is uh, I had a similar situation when I commanded First Army and working fifth, across 50 states with the National Guard Reserve and Air Force and, and Navy and deploying troops around the world for uh, the two big missions we had, is that people, my commanders would talk about, well, we are training the customer the way they want, what they want. Well, wait a minute, the customer has not been to war. How the hell do you know what he wants? There is no such thing as a customer. I, I want you to give them what they need. Because the idea of a customer is that you got a choice. If you don't want to go to this store, you go somewhere else. The idea behind a customer is you're waiting for the customer to ask you what he wants. But on the, when you're dealing with troops, you got to treat them like a patient. You want to infuse him with what you got. Because he don't know. The adjutant general in South Carolina, he's never dealt with a hurricane before. He don't know what you got. If you wait on him to be a customer to call you and say, hey, what can you help me with? He don't know. The guy who's commanding uh, Afghanistan now, General Campbell, when he got there, he's never done that job before. He don't know what you got. You know, if he go into the briefings and he don't ask for products, he don't know what to ask for. So you've got to feed him what? Something in his IV tube to make sure he's getting what you got. As opposed to 
saying, well, I'll wait till they call us uh, to give them this service you have. Because at the end of the day, your job is to protect the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So if you're empowered with that, what have you got, how are you getting it to the person that might make a difference? And that's what I would say we want to uh, focus on is how we push that information out uh, and get it to somebody who might be able to make an intelligent decision uh, about something as opposed to waiting for them to call you. Because that's the attitude DOD went into Katrina with. We went in with the laws at the time, which was we would wait till FEMA asked us to do something. But I can tell you the Thursday before Katrina, I sent a force requirements list to NORTHCOM, who sends to JFCOM for 20 ships. And by the time it got to JFCOM, some uh, admiral got on the phone and described to me how this works. And what he said was, what was the policy at the time? Once the declaration is made, once the governor asks and FEMA asks for something, we'll send it. But we're not going to provide you with 20 ships. Well, the first rule of war from Napoleon is what? you got to get there. You can't wait for landfall to alert the Navy because you got to float it from the Atlantic East Coast around the coast of Florida. Come on. Let's figure out how we're going to uh, get there. And... That was a lot of frustrations on a lot of people, part that you see play out on television. But when the Admiral got there, he fixed all that for me. <laughs> uh, on this issue of, uh, of customer service, just one quick antidote. Uh, and I would add another term that Craig Fugate, the current administrator of FEMA, but who, by the way, is doing a terrific job, and he calls it survivor-centric, a way to think about things. Um, I was sent down as a deputy principal federal official to Mike Brown to uh, take over and kind of stabilize the federal response in around New Orleans with uh, Russ's help. Uh, on the 9th of September, I was called to Baton Rouge by Secretary Chertoff, and he told me that uh, Mike Brown would be going back to Washington, and I was going to take over the entire response in the Gulf. Uh, that was a little surprising, but uh, we went down to have what's probably the most uncomfortable news conference I was ever part of. <laughs> and after the news conference, Secretary Chertoff went uh, back to D.C. Mike Brown stormed out, and a week later he resigned as the FEMA administrator. <clears throat> and I was sitting in the joint field office in Baton Rouge that had 5,000 people in it. Some of you may have been down there at the GIS section. If you were, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> I looked at my age, says, what are you going to do? And I said, uh, I want an all-hands meeting. We couldn't get everybody in the room, but there were about 2,000 people in what used to be an old first floor of a Dillard's warehouse. Uh, and I got up on top of a desk with a loud hailer, and I said, listen, I've got to go back to New Orleans to make sure everything keeps going on. You know, Russ had a great strong presence down there. We had a joint planning cell. We don't want to lose what we had gained. I said, I'll come back 24 hours. Here's who you call and all that. And then I looked at all of them, and I said, I'm giving you all an order. Okay, based on what we just said, you know I have no legal authority to give anybody an order. Uh, but there's an, old, uh, there's an old statement that you don't have sovereignty unless you can exert it. So I basically looked at them all, and this, this sea of faces was just completely, completely flat. I had talked to a lady coming into the building that morning, and she said, I go back to my hotel room at night, and I can't stand to turn the television on because I see my leaders and my agency vilified. So I looked at the crowd, and I said, I'm giving you an order. You're to treat everybody you come in contact with that's been impacted by this storm as if they're a member of your own family, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. Pretty clear, pretty simple, survivor-centric, customer-centric. I said, if you do this, two things will happen. Number one, if you error, if you make an error on what you're doing, you're going to err on the side of doing too much. And at this point in the response, I'm okay with that. 
And the second issue, if somebody's got a problem with what you did, their problem's with me, not you, because I told you. People started openly weeping in the room, and there was a collective sigh that changed the barometric pressure in the building. Nobody had told these people in very, central, very simple terms what the mission was. Nobody ever told these people in very simple terms what the basis for trust that creates unity effort was. Uh, but most importantly, nobody ever told any of those people that somebody had their back. So, okay. Alan, when you think about that seminal moment, right, that top cover, survivor-centric, can you compare that to what the climate was like when you were brought in for Deepwater Horizon? Totally different? Totally different. Totally different, <laughs> right? Uh, Deepwater Horizon was 45 miles offshore. The well was 5,000 feet deep in the ocean floor. The reservoir was another 12,000 feet. So it was 17,000 feet from the surface of the water. Um, state jurisdiction ends at three miles, so this is a clear case of federal preemption. In this case, my biggest problem regarding law was politics, because the local Lisa Parish president of Louisiana wanted complete control over the response, and they had neither the resources nor the capability or capacity to actually deal with an oil spill, how you make decisions on what to do about critical resources and how you deal with that. And my, my largest my largest challenge was dealing with managing the political leaders up about what the doctrine was, how do you actually fix this problem, and then maintaining a barrier so the operational commanders could actually do their job. And I could be, I could deal with the national press, uh, the Congress, and the White House. And I will just say this. <clears throat> you need to have, we talked about policy and politics. You need, you need to learn how to be effective in a political process without being political. In other words, partisan. So here's Alan's simple equation. If this is the level of effort that's required to do a job contained in current doctrine, SOP, and stuff like that, and the, and, the, and the knowledge level of the political appointee that you're working for is here, they think you're pretty good. You guys really know what you're doing, right? Here, competent, let me know what's going on here. All of a sudden, you have a credibility issue on whether or not their expectations are being met by what the rebuttable doctrinal response is or your level of effort. That's bad. And whether it's your fault, their fault, or whatever, you've got to minimize that difference. And I spent more time in the oil spill than in the hurricane minimizing the difference of the, of the political expectations and the need of political leaders to be relevant in the response to their constituencies than I did anything else in the response. So before we open it up for questions, when I think about that topic, um, General Honoré, in terms of the, the political complexion, do you want to share with the group this afternoon some of the work that you've been doing recently on trying to help um, poor communities deal with pollution um, and how that's not only a political challenge, um, but it's a scientific challenge, um, it's an infrastructure challenge. And so again, I, I think highlighting some of the work that you've been doing mm -hmm. recently is, dovetails nicely with what we heard from Admiral Allen. In my spare time now, I uh, help poor communities in Louisiana and Texas and Mississippi uh, deal with pollution. Uh, what is um, pretty relevant along the coast is that uh, for the last 50 years, when the full exploration of oil and gas happened off our coast uh, in Louisiana and Mississippi and Texas, is that uh, they went in there and they got the oil and gas. What is left there is a mess of thousands of abandoned oil wells, thousands, uh, and thousands of miles of exploration canal that is destroying our wetlands. Uh, in there, there are people live there, like Plaquemine Parish, like the uh, Code of Indians down in Vermilion Parish. Their villages are, 
are, are disappearing because those canals allow salt water to come in and now it killed the natural forest there and we're going to have to displace a, a population of people in coastal Louisiana. You know, if the Russians came in and attacked that part of the country, we'd go to war over it. But what we have is an impact of pollution that's having an impact along our coastline. And just last week, we've got a new Superfund site in Louisiana. It's from a Criso plant that was opened 92 years ago that was designed to make the post that carries our telephone wires and our electric wires. So the nation uh, has been built with last century stuff. Uh, in North Baton Rouge is the most toxic uh, area in the United States, no Northeast Baton Rouge Parish, with a collection of toxic waste. Uh, that toxic waste, uh, some people refer to that as, as an effect of climate change. And when I talked to our, our uh, former Vice President Gore, I, I, he wanted me to talk about climate change. I don't talk about climate change, I talk about pollution. Because we're standing in oil. Uh, I see it as a, uh, the biggest concern, the worst case scenario for that I see could happen now is that we have a flood along the Mississippi River somewhere around Baton Rouge. Between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, there's 100 chemical plants. Do you all know where they are? Those chemical plants could commit fratricide against one another. And if the chains start, it's going to make Chernobyl look like an elementary school problem. We put 100 chemical plants along that river with no extra security. None of them have berms around them. So you take what the Admiral dealt with out deep in the ocean. We're going to be able to get to it, but the impact is when we go from a natural disaster to a man-made disaster. And right now we're dealing one that was created over the last 50 years, abandoned uh, chemical sites, abandoned crystal plants, abandoned oil wells throughout coastal Louisiana, Mississippi, and Texas that's now affecting the aquifers. We got three aquifers in Louisiana. All three uh, are in trouble. And we need to start having a conversation in this nation about our water infrastructure. Uh, I've written two books, my last one, uh, I project that the next wars will be over water. It won't be over oil. We got less clean water in the world today than we had yesterday. It's sad to say on your watch, because you're on duty now, tomorrow morning we have less clean water than we got today. We're going to have to start thinking big time about how we're going to deal with this, because this is a lot more impact on human race than what Russia is doing in Syria or what, uh, what's going on in some village in Afghanistan. We've got a problem with industrial pollution that can go from a natural disaster like a Katrina, where it was to hit a little further north in Louisiana and expose these 100 chemical plants, uh, it's going to be a problem. That we will go from a natural disaster to a man-made disaster, something like what happened in Japan. And those are the worst case scenarios that I think we need to be talking about is uh, what are the status of those old nuclear plants? And what are we doing with the nuclear waste? Those are the problems I think that keep me up at night. It's not about these tactical actions that take place or, uh, or the effects of them with the mass migration that's going on out of Syria 
in that part of the country. That, that concerns me. But what the biggest concern inside our country is uh, how are we going to deal with these pockets of pollution in our coastline that some of them have uh, nuclear power plants. The youngest nuclear power plant is, what, 32 years old? And a lot of them are still running. And we don't have a shutdown plan. And if they get flooded by water, just like did in Japan, we got a problem on our hands. We've got to figure out how we're going to deal with these worst-case scenarios. And right now in Louisiana, we're just dealing with the pollution end of it, but it's having a major impact on people's health. I'm sorry for such a long response. Apologize. It's a passionate topic, right? And it's, it's something we've got to deal with. We're going to open it up for some questions. I have a few of my own, but we'll only use that as a stopgap measure. So for my colleagues here at NCE, we have the microphone set up here in the room. Um, any of you are welcome to um, step up, and we're happy to field questions. General Henry is going to love this because this is one of my southern colleagues here. Hi, I'm Jason, and I'm originally from Eunice. Um, so thank you for your leadership. And uh, thanks for mentioning Hurricane Rita, too. It was an important, uh, important event. So you talked about um, being ready, um, that w when, when you were called um, to, to duty, that it wasn't just kind of a whim that you all were ready to lead during those times, that you prepared for it. Um, so, so what advice would you give? To, to, to us, those of us who, who aspire to be ready when the time comes for, um, that we might be called for a situation like, like you led through? Well, Thanks. number one, uh, be ready at home. How many of you have uh, an evacuation plan? Okay, we're not doing good. <laughs> How many of you have five to six days supply of food and water at home? I'm not talking about that old deer sausage from last year down there, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, records show between the Red Cross and Gallup, who we'll do a little work with, only about 15 to 20 percent of our population really get prepared for the most likely disaster. Because if you're along the East Coast and the South, you pay attention to hurricane season. Last September was preparedness month. How many of you updated your preparedness plan? Well, we encourage people to do that. I think the best thing we can do and encourage all Americans, if you got a job, you need to be prepared. <clears throat> because when the stuff go down, the people we got to look out for the quickest is the vulnerable population. And that's a, almost a third of our population. That's the people that's on government subsistence, the disabled, uh, elderly, or, or poor, and in some cases, all three. About 90% of the people we recovered in New Orleans that died were, came from that vulnerable population, elderly, disabled, and poor. So to those of us with jobs, you got to be prepared. And if you, you got a job like this, you need to be prepared to be your own first responder, taking care of your family. And then when you take care of your family, you take care of your neighbors. And then when you do that, you take care of your extended family to make sure they're ready. Three to five days supply of food and water, uh, a NOAA certified crank radio that you can recharge your phone with, as well as to recharge the radio so you can stay informed. Uh, think about what would happen right now if uh, everybody here was told to shelter in place. Something happened on, in the city, you cannot get on the roads. Now think about what you're going to go home to. Some of you got to pick kids up, some of you got to do what? Uh, go see about mom and dad who might be shut in. Who would do this for you today if you could not leave here? 
And I think we've got to have adult conversations, and we need a cultural shift in America because we all think we're going to have time. Uh, and these major disasters, again, if you think about what happened in Japan, one of the most prepared nations in the world, it could happen here. You don't live very far from a nuclear power plant that's just out there stumbling along, probably about 35 years old. How many of you drive cars that are 35 years old? So you get the point I'm talking about? I would say be prepared. You got a job. You get prepared. Get your mom and dad prepared wherever they are. You go visit them. You make sure they got a preparedness plan. If you don't know what to do, then go to my website and download one. But be prepared is what I would tell you. The best thing you can do for our nation is prepare your family for the event you're not there and you've got to be here that they can take care of themselves for three to five days because that's how long it's going to take for the government to get there with full response if you've got road closure, airports closed, or area that's restricted because of uh, chemicals or other dispersant. That, that would be my recommendation. Yeah, the performance outcome of what Russ just said, and I completely agree with him, is that if you do that, then you do not put a demand on emergency services, so you don't become the opportunity cost that didn't allow them to save somebody. Number two, you're compliant with local authorities, and if you're not driven out of your house by water or some other means, you should be able to stay there 72 to 96 hours and not become a demand signal on the resources in the local area. That's how you create community resiliency. Admiral Allen, what was the number one leadership quality, Ed mentioned it, that allowed you to lead at that moment? And I think that's also yeah. what Jason was hinting at as well. Uh, I make this pretty simple. <laughs> There's a lot of theories about leadership. Uh, you know, are leaders born, are they made, or whatever. Uh, I reject that completely. Everybody can be a better leader. And in my view, leadership involves two things. First of all, my favorite definition of leadership is the ability to reconcile opportunity and competency. Uh, you Russ talked about being in the military 35 years and then having the opportunity to take those skills and apply them to the best needs of the citizens of the United States with people very rarely get a chance to do. And frankly, I both, both of us would say it was an honor to have been asked to be down there. Uh, the two things that I tell folks, if you're, if you're looking at complexity and the challenges we're facing in the future, uh, the first essential is what I would call lifelong learning. You know, if, you don't, if those synapses are not firing and you're, in the, you're not working out in the middle gym, if you can put into a situation where you have to do rapid learning and adjust rapidly, it's hard to do. The second one is what I would call emotional intelligence. That's understanding what makes you mad, the ability to empathize with what's going on with people, uh, to talk, move from, uh, from, from, from customer to patient to survivor-centric to how we're doing this. That involves an empathetic view of the people you're trying to serve out there. So the two overwhelming things, and I teach this in courses that I talk about, are lifelong learning, and emotional intelligence. I was not a very well-behaved junior officer. I got angry. I got in trouble. You got to learn how to control that, because if you don't and you act out in public, you take the entire uh, force you're serving in this society to what I would call an emotional basement. Tony Hayward, the COBP, did that when he said on public television I and mean, the media, I want my life back. There were 40,000 people down there, including Thad Allen, that want their lives back. So what he said wasn't wrong. It just wasn't appropriate for a leader to say. I know we have a question in the back. We'll take that one, and then we'll go out to St. Louis for one last question. Uh, Adam from Houston, Texas. Certainly uh, appreciate what you all did down there, helping our part of the country. Um, so my question is partially you, General. Um, I'm not sure where you're from, Admiral, so hopefully you can still answer this. Um, a lot of what we pay attention to is knowing our customer, understanding our customer here. So being from Louisiana, do you think that's something 
that ended up helping you? Um, what kind of assumptions do you think you made about the people? And did things, did your emotions ever get a part of you? And did you ever have to kind of take a step back and say, I gotta put my general hat on and kind of take my Louisiana hat off here? Um, and same to you, Admiral. Yeah, I take that hat off about every 20 minutes. <laughs> the accent got thicker when he And uh, dealing with the, uh, because the, uh, a disaster will make a leader look stupid. And the press will make sure they know. <laughs> Everybody knows. Because there's some, there's some perception that you're in charge in a disaster. Well, that's why it's a disaster. <laughs> I talked to these governors at governor's conferences and stuff, and they'll tell you their war story of when they had a tornado came to town or they had a great flooding in Colorado, and they wax eloquently how they worked together and they were in charge of everything. I said, well, okay, then. Maybe, yeah, people died, you, you lost some uh, structure, but uh, a real disaster, you, you don't have the capacity internally to deal with it. You gotta help. You gotta have help at least one or two levels up to deal with it. So when a mayor or governor start bragging about how well they did when it flooded 10 years ago and how they internally handled it, then maybe it wasn't a disaster. Uh, a disaster, as I describe it, from Pascagoula, Mississippi to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, there's no lights. The phone towers are down, and in between a city of half a million, 80% of it is underwater. The hospitals are underwater, the nursing homes are blocked. Uh, now we're talking a disaster. In other words, you can't handle it with internal assets. So you got to get help. That's uh, the definition. The other piece of that is how do you deal with the messaging of that with the media? And I know we want to talk, so I'll use this minute to shoot back at you. Uh, what I would do different is, uh, is probably be, try to be uh, more kind. There's some perception came out I was a mean dude. And <laughs> it had nothing to do with it. It just had to have time to give long answers to stuff. I mean, you got people waiting to be rescued and somebody wants you to describe you why you didn't do this last week. So dealing with the media, if you don't talk to them, somebody else will. Let me put it that way. And then you're going to spend the rest of the 24 hours in the next news cycle trying to correct something somebody else said. So talk to them early in the morning, talk to them late at night. The other thing is I would not talk to talk shows. I would not talk to those idiots that come on at night for an hour. I talk to news. News is on for two or three minutes, and you move on. I would not talk to somebody who had 24 hours to figure out what stupid questions they were going to ask you. <laughs> so I talked to news people who are given the 6 o'clock news in the morning and in the evening. The other thing is, uh, remember, the E in email is evidence. <laughs> and uh, my computer was seized after Katrina. And... Uh, because everybody was figuring there was some, something that the government in power did that was, uh, again, we didn't do something right, we, that something went wrong. And they downloaded my computer as they did the ones at FEMA and Mike Brown computer, because they wanted to deconstruct what happened. So I just tell you, uh, if you put it on your Blackberry or you put it in your computer, uh, somebody's going to see it and they can recover that information. And uh, 
Sometimes it provides uh, a chuckle, and sometimes it's an embarrassing moment. But just remember, if you type it, uh, it's there to stay, and somebody's going to see it and, uh, uh, for future references. Yeah, I, I call it the uh, sociological equivalent of non-biodegradable plastic. <laughs> um, a couple of quick comments. Uh, first of all, you said you were from Houston. Uh, the largest disaster recovery center ever established in this country was established in Houston. Houston took over 200,000 people that left New Orleans. And Mayor Bill White. Good man. National treasure. We thank him for his service. I know he's no longer the mayor there, but uh, thank you for that. Uh, I will make one, one comment because I have other questions. Uh, just uh, I want to reinforce what my uh, compadre here said. So I'm going to give you my best Rossonere imitation. <laughs> Excuse me. Are you like a commander reporter? Because if you think you're a commander reporter, that was a lieutenant question. Next. <laughs> Very good, Admiral. <laughs> I went out to Fort. I Lever witnessed it. <laughs> I went out to Fort Leavenworth, and uh, after Katrina and Diddy, the, the students out there at the Commanding Staff College. So I went in a small group afterwards, and one of one of my troops told me, "Said, well, you know, General, they teach the majors here who are about to go back out to the Army uh, the way not to do a press conference, and they use some of your clips." <laughs> I yeah, said, the only well, thing they got out of Russ's email is words you can't use on television. <laughs> I said, well, uh, rightly so. I said, they're damn majors. I was an army commander. I'm not going to act like a damn major. Majors ought to act like majors. I wouldn't want majors talking like me either. So uh, put it, keep it in perspective. And so How'd you handle this, You take guys? that as a, as a compliment, but, you know, it, it was what it was. Actually, I used to tell everybody working with Russ was like managing collateral goodness. <laughs> Geointeresting is presented by the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency's Office of Corporate Communications. For more information on NGA, visit www.nga.mil or follow us on Twitter at NGA underscore GeoInt. Never miss an episode of GeoInteresting by subscribing on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. <laughs>